0: We're in Mark chapter 9. We're going to deal with 40 verses, almost 40 verses today, five different stories. Let me paint a picture for you. If pictures work um, and stick, then I'll paint one. Let's assume that the, the gospel Mark, let's just say the gospel Mark is like a mountain, okay? Well, a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, we reached the summit of Mark's gospel. When Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter's Declaration is the summit of the gospel story. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the risen one. Every story, every miracle, every conflict with the religious leaders, all the questions culminate in the answer that has been being presented by the the, the writer in the gospel constantly in these first eight chapters, and that is Jesus and who he is, right? Okay? Peter concluded what most of you, or many of you have included, uh, included these last... I don't know how many, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is, in essence, your Messiah, that he is God the Son come in flesh to rescue you. You've concluded that. And all of us who trust in Christ have also concluded this based on the issue of faith, faith that we place in in Christ. It comes by that conclusion. Faith, by the way, even in its clumsy, awkward, imperfect form, faith, in Christ and and who he is. This is how the apostle Paul describes this faith in Philippians chapter one. And I am sure of this, that he, God, who began the good work in you, the good work of faith, the good work of transformation, will bring it to completion at the day of of Christ Jesus. That's the work that God's doing. He started something. He's going to finish something. And when is he finishing it? The day of Christ Jesus. So in the middle of this, between conversion and glory is change, growth, development. You get it? We're becoming like Christ. I suppose if I could pick one word um, out of all the words we have, to best describes the life of a Christian, a person who trusts in Christ, is the, is the word faith, how we respond to, to God. But that word has been hijacked, and I, I, that's no mystery to you, no surprise to you that that word has been um, distorted. And some have said, and it's not true, that Christian faith is simply believing in your heart what your mind tells you isn't true, and that's not biblical faith. There are some who would say that it is a blind leap into the darkness and just kind of going, okay, we'll see how this works out, and that's not faith. Faith is not wishful thinking, faith is not superstitious, faith is not a mental creative power that brings into into existence things that otherwise wouldn't be into existence, faith is not what some would say a weapon that we use to get God to do what he wouldn't normally do on his own terms, that we can just say, faith makes God obligated to me in in that fashion, okay? Here's how the writer of Hebrews describes faith, and you're familiar with this passage in, in, in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. 25 years ago, 30 years, no, more than that, 35 years ago, I got a Bible. It was an NIV Bible, and I worked that one to death. I mean, it's just raggedy, and I love that Bible. Everything I ever learned about God and his gospel came in that Bible. Well, about five years ago, they, this ESV came out, and, and some of the elders said, you should start teaching out of ESV because most people have that. And I said, oh, okay, I'll make that trip. But there is an interpretation of that passage from an old version, the very first Bible I ever got from the King James Version, that I think does a better job of describing this issue of faith than even the ESV. When the writers or the translators of that King James Version says, faith is the substance of things not seen. And there's a big difference. And let me describe why. Because there's reality in our faith. There's not a dream in it. There's not a just a hope in it, there, there is some part of what we wait for in glory that's ours already by faith, right? If there is peace to come, if there's joy to come, if there's rest to come, if there's satisfaction to come ultimately, then we already have parts of that now. There's substance to our faith, right? There's a re- reality to our faith. It's, it's here now, okay? That's, that's what our faith is. Now, Here's another misunderstanding about our faith, and it's sneaky, but we all deal with it, and that is this, that faith gets kind of twisted in our failures, doesn't it? Like you fall down, spiritually speaking, you sin, that's the code word for sin, and what happens to our faith? We question. And maybe we go so far as to question our faith, but more than anything, it ends up being something from Satan to make us question whether God would continue a promise to somebody like me, right? You've been here a thousand times over the same issue. There is no way God's going to keep just extending grace to you, right? Isn't that what you hear? Isn't that what Satan says that what you need to doubt is whether God's going to deliver? And all these things he said. So there's that misunderstanding. But I want you to get this this morning as we start to get ready to unpack what I think the text is talking about in regards to faith. The reality of of our faith isn't experienced in the perfection of it, okay? The reality of our faith is experienced in the fight of it, and there is a big difference. Some people think that my faith is more real when I have settled this and sorted that out, and I become this or I become that, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. Faith is seen more in that I hate my sin, and I try hard not to sin that I confess my sin and I return from my sin, and I repent of my sin, my fight to believe the good things about God and his gospel. And, and as awkward as we are, as stumbling as we are, as clumsy as we are spiritually, as much as we, if, if we were God, would say no more to you, okay? Faith, real biblical faith, fights for these things. Fights for this truth. It's not a perfection. And to those of us who've trusted in Christ... Our faith is is just like that. It's not perfect, but it's real. Amen? And I suppose if... if uh, I don't know of a better picture than the story of Jesus kind of in stages healing the blind man to describe what we're talking about. Blind man. Now, physically, he couldn't see at all, but spiritually, that's our condition before Jesus. And Jesus, who is capable just to turn it all on right away, touches him in a stage of sight, and he says he sees, but... Men are like trees walking around. It's blurry. Well, right there, you've captured what it is to live between salvation and glory. I see, but not everything. Not always clearly. I see. I I trust in Christ, but I don't know how this is going to work out, and I don't know what that means, and I'm learning, right? My faith is under development, and and it's the touch of Christ that will ultimately bring perfect sight to us, okay? Okay. I've also told you many times that as we look at the scriptures, the scriptures are like a diamond, you know, or whatever analogy you want to use, a thousand facets and every one of them is beautiful. And we could stop and spend time looking at just one of those facets and turn it over and start over. There there is no way to exhaust all the ways we could apply this text, but I'm going to pick one of those facets and just deal with that this morning. And the issue that I want to deal with is the facet of faith, Okay. Just the facet or the thread of faith. Uh, when we about, I don't know, eight, more than that, probably 10 months ago, decided we are going to pick Mark, we went through and picked the sections. This is a big section, 40 verses. And at first glance, you're going to wrestle with getting the context, the thread of what maybe is happening here. But I think, I think the issue, if you just think about the thread of faith, you, you've encapsulated what I think Mark the writer is doing here. Let me build a little context for what's happening. Um, we have Peter's greatest moment. We have the pinnacle, the summit of Mark's gospel in chapter 8, verse 29, you are the Christ, and right as soon as he says that, almost like a sentence later, Jesus talks about suffering and Peter's worst moment comes out. Hey, Jesus, let's not do this suffering thing we're not into the cross, we're not into death, we're not into sacrifice. You simply be the Messiah as I envision you, the political leader, the one to deal with Rome. You bring glory now. We don't want to talk about death. Right on the lips of his greatest moment becomes his lowest moment. Peter understood something about Christ. He understood that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one. Matthew tells us how that happened. When Jesus says to, to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven told you that, he's, that I'm the Messiah. So we even understand that even that particular confession was from, from God. But even though God has revealed to Peter part of who Jesus is, there is still so much more to learn. His faith has to grow, right? It has to, it has to grow. And I think after Jesus looks at Peter's suggestion suggestion to avoid the cross and Jesus calls him out for satanic agenda, my guess is that Peter needs a little bit of love at this point, a little bit of encouragement because I I blew it. He's not happy with me. I said something wrong. And so there's a combination of needs now for Peter and the disciples. One is he needed hope. He needed a little bit of encouragement and he needed his faith to get bigger. His faith had to include a Jesus that wasn't just this Messiah leader to deal with Rome, but a Messiah sacrificer to give his life, okay? So with that in mind, here's what I'm going to do with this chapter, these 40 verses. I'm just calling them lessons on faith, okay? And five stories will be five lessons, and here's the first lesson. Faith is listening to Jesus because of who he is. Faith is listening to Jesus because of who he is. Now, let's read the story. This is the transfiguration. I'm certain you're familiar with it, but this is what goes down. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them at a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to re- restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Now let me ask you a question before we dig this apart, okay? Where does faith come from? It's okay, you say it. Jesus. Jesus. The Father gives faith, right? He he is the one who is the author of it. If you ever wanted to know how seriously God takes your faith and your understanding of who he is, then this is your story. He's all over your faith. Not just from the moment your eyes are open and you're converted to new life. All of it. He's intense about it. So, we've got Peter's greatest moment, his worst moment. What does he need? He needs confirmation of his best moment, and he needs some correction for his worst moment. Doesn't he? And so, here comes the confirmation. It is the transfiguration. Transfiguration, the word really means metamorphosed. It's like, you know, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. In essence, he changes, transforms. And what did Jesus transform into? his pre-earthly state, his deity. He, He shone as bright as the sun at that moment, something totally different than what they had seen him many times before. He slipped back into that earthly form, confirming Peter's confession. Peter, you just said that he's the one and only. Boom, see it with a visible form. He is God, come in the flesh, okay? Peter, be encouraged. Have some hope. There's another confirmation that happens, and it seems kind of odd, but it is the collection of people there that Peter is watching from Elijah and Moses and and Jesus, okay? Elijah the great prophet, Moses the great lawgiver, Both of them having these symbolisms and understandings in their history. Both of these men had talked to God on mountaintops before. Both of these men on Mount Sinai and Mount Horb had 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 those conversations. They had both seen the glory of God. They both had kind of a miraculous departure from this earth, from from Elijah being carried away on a fire in a chariot, and Moses dying and being hidden by God in some grave no one knows. Okay, so they have these stories. Law. Law. Moses, prophecy, Elijah, they're both hanging out with Jesus, and Peter goes, wow, what do you think God is saying there? Everything points to him. All the law and all the prophecies point to him. He is the one and only. He is the Messiah. He is God's son. You're absolutely right, Peter. You got it. You nailed it. He is your, he is your promised one, okay? That's what you hope for. Right after that, though, there is this instruction that happens, this correction that happens. Peter needs more than just an understanding of what he thinks the Messiah is because they didn't fully understand it. And Luke helps us in this narrative understand what it is that he needs, okay? So so Luke kind of inserts in this story what they were talking about. So Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are sitting around chatting, and Peter's watching with the disciples what they're talking about. And the text tells us what they were saying. They were talking about Jesus' departure not leaving that moment, but leaving that moment to go to Jerusalem to die. They understood. They were all talking about what this historical moment was coming to conclusion in, in Jesus, that he was going to die. The reason why he came was to die, and Peter's hearing that. And the only thing Peter can think to do is say, hey, let's build some cabins. <laughs> Funny, right? Yeah. I got it. This is good. This is sweet. Let's not go anywhere. Hey, let's, let's do this glory thing now. You, Jesus, you rule right now. I'm going to plug my ears and pretend I didn't hear anything about your departure. Let's just stay right here because this is good, right? I want this Jesus. I don't want the suffering Jesus. Jesus Peter was trying to suggest to skip the cross and s- skip the, f- the suffering right as soon as that comes out of his mouth, obviously text tells us that the Shekinah glory crowd, the the cloud of God's presence kind of hovered over them all. Now, I I would imagine that Peter's feeling pretty good now too, another confirmation that this is all of God, this glory that hovered over the mountain with Moses in Mount Sinai, this this cloud that kind of led the people of God in the wilderness, this cloud that hangs over the tabernacle, this cloud, by the way, that had been gone for 600 years now shows up for Peter to see around Jesus and Elijah and, and Moses, all right? And it's as if God is saying, Peter, look, you're right. You're spot on. He's the Messiah, but your faith has to grow. And that phrase, perfect phrase, this is my beloved son. Peter, you got it right, but, there should be a but in there. Listen to him. Listen to what? What is he telling him to listen to? Everything that Jesus has been talking about in his suffering He's told you time and time again that he's come to die. He's giving his life. He will rise again. And you want no part of it. You don't want any part of his suffering, okay? You're not listening to him. Your faith, Peter, loves the idea of him being king, to rule, to bring happiness to you your way. Peter, you love that. Your faith loves the idea of making some changes around here. But your, your faith does not love transformation. And transformation is code for death, just so you know. No one becomes like Christ unless something dies or someone dies. And the reality is the Savior has to die and our old man has to die. And Peter wanted no part of that. He had a concept of the Messiah. He was right that he was the Messiah, but he wasn't prepared for the suffering. I think Peter, before we get kind of nitpicky on his life, I think Peter struggles with the same problem we all struggle with, unless God doesn't do something to open our eyes. We don't think the problem we have is is grave enough to warrant death. That's the problem. We think, we think, all I need is a little bit of help, a little pick-me-up. We think what I need is just a little bit of adjustment, a little opportunity I mean, things are pretty good. Things are pretty good. I just, I just need to go to heaven. I don't need to have my sin dealt with in that way. Not with death. And there's a part of us, every one of us, unless God doesn't open our eyes, that we're never going to understand that the good news is directly connected to the bad news. That you're far worse than you ever feared. Ever. And no one, no one understands a fully morphed Jesus unless they understand that he came to die and to do a destructive work on us that prefers a different kind of Jesus, okay? And then in verse 8, suddenly, it's all gone. No more glory of God. The cloud is gone. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And the Jesus is just standing there. And I think there's not a better picture in all the scriptures to describe to the church what he's doing with his children than that picture right there. All your learning, all your theology, all your education, all your discipleship, all your service, every bit of it, all of it, it is to get our... Other God, idol factory heart to see and desire only Jesus. Jesus is the point of everything. It is so easy for us to um, love and care for things that are moral and good, but have no focus on Christ whatsoever. What a picture of Jesus. That's all you got. Take away all this and all of that, and what you have is Jesus, and that's what God wants to do in our hearts But this understanding is coming hard for these guys. They still don't get it. They spend in verse 10 questioning what rising from the dead means. And they ask what they think, and I think is a valid question in verse 12. Where's Elijah in all this? Because Malachi 4 says Elijah will precede the coming of the Son of Man. And, by the way, the rabbis would teach that this this. Elijah would come three days before the Messiah, and he would speak to the world in such a way that the whole world would hear his voice at the same time. And on day one, he would simply say, over and over again, peace comes to the world. Second day, good comes to the world, over and over again. Third day, salvation comes to the world, and then the Messiah would show up. And so Peter and his boys are thinking, if he's the Messiah like I think he is, then where's this Elijah guy? Something has to happen first. And Jesus simply says, he did come referring to John the Baptist. And how did they treat him? Again, coming back to this issue of death and suffering and cost to follow Christ. Trying to teach the picture that what God's doing isn't what you're dreaming about. What what you and your heart wants to be satisfied in isn't what God's agenda is. Again, referring to John the Baptist. Now, I have a tendency to be a little bit hard on my biblical brothers, okay? Okay. I look at these stories and go, man, what a bunch of chuckleheads. How many times does Jesus have to talk about suffering and death and the cross for them not to get it? But I'm going to kind of own my arrogance in this. If that ever enters our mind, then we have to remind ourselves that we're really no different whatsoever. So let me prove that by asking you a couple questions. Who in here listens to Jesus all the time? It's okay. Nobody at 8 or 9.30 raised their hand either. Who, who in here embraces the way of the cross all the time? Nobody does. Nobody I've ever met. And here's what, here's what the Holy Spirit was saying out loud. The Father was saying out loud to Peter. In the midst of him desiring a different version of Jesus, he said, listen, he is the Son of Man, but you need to listen to him. Listen to him. Are we listening in faith when we hear Jesus say, don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, because your Father in heaven knows what you need. So rest in him. Do, are we really listening in faith when we hear him say that, or do we run away and do what we are programmed to do? I've got to fix this. Are we listening in faith when he says that if a man is thirsty, come and drink from him, and you will not be thirsty anymore? What do we do? We drink out of mud puddles. We really do. We pick other versions. Other versions of things to quench our thirst, temporary versions, not not his version. Are are we listening in faith when we hear Jesus say, come to me if you're weary and burdened and heavy-hearted, and that's where you're going to find rest? What do we do? We work ourselves to death. We buy our own rest. We work to change our world to such such a degree that we find rest some other way. Are we really listening in faith when we hear Jesus say, if you were to come after him, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him? Are we really listening? Are we really listening in faith when we know those things are what Jesus says? And here's what I think. I've discovered in my own heart, and maybe you can relate to this. My problem comes most of the time because I don't listen to that. Isn't it true? If you ever find yourself in a hopeless place or a sinful place, it's because you haven't listened Here's the second lesson. If the first lesson of faith is, is faith is listening to Jesus, then here's the second lesson of faith. Faith requires dependence on God, 12 through 29. Now, I am not going to read all of this because we are running out of time, but let me just quick tell you the story of what's happening here. Jesus... And Peter, James, and John are coming down off the mountain, and the other disciples who didn't go up on the mountain are left in town, and they're working on an exorcism. A man brings a boy who's been possessed by a demon forever, okay? And there's a crowd trying to watch this whole thing happen, and the disciples aren't having any success, and so Jesus questions them on this whole deal. And and he asks the disciples, what's what's going on? And this father pops up and says, well, I brought him him to your guys to cast out the demon, but they're not having any any success. And so Jesus, in verse 19, tells us what the problem is. Oh, faithless generation. (laughs) What's the problem? There's a faith problem, okay? Now, fast forward the story. Jesus then heals this young boy. God gets the glory. And the disciples, in verse 29, ask this question. Okay, Jesus, we're confused. How come we couldn't cast out the demon? And Jesus said, well, this kind of of activity only happens by the power of prayer. This one can only come out by prayer. So here's what we have. In verse 19, Jesus identifies the problem as faithlessness. He gives us the solution in verse 29 as dependence or prayer. So let me just ask you a question. If the disciples weren't praying, then what were they doing? What were, the, what were the disciples doing? I'll tell you what they were doing. Same thing we do work, striving, adding, subtracting. We're, we're doing something. Now, just imagine the disciples have been down this road before. Jesus has sent them out before, and they have cast out demons and before miracles and healed people. My guess is the disciples say, We got this, right? We got it. We know what we're doing. Old hat. Yesterday's news. I can do this, and nothing happened. Sounds familiar. I'll rely on my technique, on my self confidence, my experience, my my knowledge, my know how. I don't need to pray. What do we need to pray for? It's interesting if you add Matthew's account of this story here, Matthew seventeen. Um, Matthew tells us that the disciples asked the question, why couldn't they cast out the demon? And Jesus simply said, it's because of little faith. And then he tells this story in verse 20. If you have faith the size of the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, be moved. Okay, now let me ask you a question. How insignificant must their faith be that it won't even merit the size of a mustard seed, okay? What Jesus was saying was like, it's not big enough. He's saying it's not existent. You don't believe. You're totally confident in your own abilities. You're not trusting in me, right? Your faith amounts to nothing. Why? Not because you don't know enough. Not because you're not busy enough. Not because you're not focused on the king or his business. It's because you're not dependent enough. The church could be accused of this all day long. We got it. We know it. We believe it. We confess it. We've done it. We've got techniques and programs and curriculum. Bring it. Whatever the problem is, I've got a solution. But we probably don't see answers, probably because we're not dependent enough. Right? A dependency that, that comes from an honest heart that, that's willing to admit, I don't have all the answers, and my job isn't to run around and try to fix everything. That's not my job in faith. Dependency thinks that prayer is the strongest thing we do, not the last thing we do when we run out of resources. Isn't that true? There's got to be a change of heart. Now, I've confessed this so many times, I think you should throw me out. But I I struggle to pray. I struggle to pray because somehow I'm wired in my flesh to work. I'd rather fix things than trust, okay? But that's my problem. It's the last thing we think of. I love verse 24, this statement of the Father. It should remind us of some things when the Father says, "I, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's just another reminder that nobody's faith is complete and it's okay. God will complete it in glory. God is not waiting for you to have perfect belief before He moves in your life, okay? God is already moving in your life in spite of your confusion, in spite of your fears, in, in spite of your anger, in spite of your doubts. God is already moving in your life. He doesn't respond to your perfection. He responds to his. Amen. Hebrews 2 says it this way. I think this is the NIV, but I love how it reads. It says that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who planted the flag in the dead heart. So this one's mine. Remember? Remember? so so he's going to do some renovations and he's going to rebuild and make it his he's going to plant some things called faith he's going to do some things in your heart and totally make you a new person because he's the pioneer of your faith he's the perfecter of your faith here's the third lesson and it is this that faith is loving faith is loving the cross in verses 30 to 32 it it, is, it goes like this, Jesus again teaching about suffering, and he says, and they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, here's the message over and over again. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. But they didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask at this point. Clearly the disciples need Holy Spirit intervention to understand the beauty of the cross. And that sounds like a twisted way to say it, right? Cross, an instrument of torture, an, an instrument of murder. Yeah, the beauty of the cross. And before we think that that's their problem and not our problem, maybe we should be honest with ourselves and ask just a simple question When do we ever think about dying to ourselves? Wake up in the morning and go, what's my list to die to today? Probably doesn't happen. You want proof? Just go to the list of things you would not verbally say, but the things that you're proud of, things you think you got wired. My job, my work, my income, my kids, my knowledge, my understanding, my doctrine, all those things you might put in the category of file that says, that's good, okay? And that's good, and that's a safe place. And so all I need is for God to add to my already good, all right? But that is an understanding of what faith is. Faith is loving the cross. Let me ask it this way. Does the cross apply to some of you or all of you? What do you think? The reason why the disciples didn't get the cross, the reason why they didn't love the cross, is because they totally missed why they needed the cross. Do you understand? Why do you need the cross? Fire insurance. I just want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I mean, that's it. Um, I used to do some really bad things, and so I just want some covering for the bad things. I just want somebody to make that go away. I've got kids now. I need, to, I need to deliver. I need to stand up, be a stand-up kind of leader, and so I want to do the best for my children, so I need Jesus to kind of help me be a, a good dad. Why do you need the cross? Is it for your version of freedom and your versi- version of happiness? Or is it because you really, really, really believe that nothing good lives inside of you? Is that why you need the cross? Because if you need the cross for that, you have it. The sacrifice the forgiveness of God for your complete inability You understand that all that you are and everything that you want and all your man-made versions of joy need to die with Jesus so that what he resurrects is his reflection, not anything to do with yours. That's the point of the cross. You have to go away. It's not going to be you and Jesus. It'll be Jesus, period. Nothing else. It is the picture of when Elijah leaves and Moses leaves and the glory cloud leaves. What do we got? Jesus. That's the beauty of the cross, faith loves the cross, because it understands that the problem is so huge, so cataclysmic, that without total death and annihilation, there is no Jesus. And when we're in glory, just so you know, I hope this doesn't disappoint you, everything you still are confused about that is important to you is going to be vaporized, and you're only going to have Jesus, and you'll be happier for it. That's the reality of the cross. Let me give you the fourth lesson. Faith requires humility. Faith requires humility. Verses 33 through 36 is this really funky, bad-timing move on the disciples, in my opinion. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with each other, Who is the greatest? (laughs) Hysterical. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of, of all. Do you see why loving the cross is so important here? Because if we don't love the cross, we're going to think this faith thing is about us. And it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the wonder and the power and the majesty and the beauty of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, period. Nothing to do with us. How how after a mind-blowing transfiguration and after a complete humiliating exorcism that didn't go at all like they wanted or this wonderful lesson about suffering how do how do we end up here with this conversation about who is the greatest well because the disciples in their mind could not comprehend the 180 Jesus pulls on greatness you want to be alive you need to die you want to be great you need to be small you want to merit the kingdom You must be a servant of all, complete and total reversal. You want to be recognized, you got to be obscure. You want joy, you got to sacrifice. Just take your world, take whatever is your world, and just go, okay, inside out. That's the call of Christ. That's what he says. A total 180 on everything, upside-down world. Our world says power, possessions, position, all of that matters. The gospel says that the church should fight for obscurity, smallness, smallness, because we want nothing to detract from his greatness. Last lesson. Verses 38 through 41. God is sovereign over those he gives faith to. God is sovereign over those he gives faith to. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not, he was not following us but Jesus said, do not stop in, for, for one who, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The disciples struggle here and conclude wrongly that the epicenter of all that God was doing was them, and that's not true. This nasty, jealous, competitive spirit shows up, and and you can see it in the phrasing of what they say. Jesus, they're not doing what we do. He didn't say, they didn't say, he's not following you. They said he's not following us. We do it right. Tell me the church doesn't have that reputation. There's one way to do this thing, us. In fact, I don't know if anybody else has a Bible but us. And nobody else has doctrine squared away like us. Clearly, there's only three Christians in the world. You get the lesson? Sometimes we think that there's only a few people who really get what God is doing. And we, in our arrogance, try to decide who's in and who's out. And that isn't to be. I hope you realize that what God is doing is he's saving all kinds of people with all kinds of stripes who will believe in Jesus as the Savior of men's sins, who by faith alone in Christ alone will be transformed. They might not be here, but they're in his kingdom. And there there is a faith to that, to believe that God is transforming all types, all colors, all stripes, all creeds, right, to line up under one. Who is the one? Only Jesus. Moses, Elijah, Cloud, Jesus. If there is a word that is uh, a good word to describe the Christian experience, and we like the word faith, if faith is a great way to describe it, then I'm going to give you a word as we leave here that describes the attitude of the Christian life. If faith describes what it is, the the attitude is humility. You, You probably saw it ringing over and over again in this passage, but here's how it would look according to these stories. To be a people humble enough to actually listen to Jesus and not make a different version of Jesus. To be a people who are humble enough to depend completely on Christ alone and no other. To, to be a people who are humble enough to love, cr- love the cross and love the death that the cross brings to us and to our idols, to other reasons of joy. It is, it is the... To be a people humble enough to know that this is not at all about us. It's all about Jesus. We are blessed to even be a part of it. And it's ultimately to be a people humble enough to to love his work and his church wherever he is building it. Amen? Amen. Let's let's pray for that humility. God, I thank you for um, Jesus, our Savior. And I thank you that you have not given up on your promise to transform us. I thank you for the understanding that we're not complete yet, that our faith is a little blurry. We see some things, but not everything. But we do know what your agenda is, that you make us like him in every way, in every shape, in every form, that we love what he loves, and we care how he cares, and we worship how he worships. God, all we can do is confess our need and totally believe your promise that you're bringing the remedy